Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question, while providing real solutions from a biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Charles Roberts and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Welcome to another edition of the Out of the Question podcast. I am your host, Andrea Schwartz, and I am joined by my co-host, Charles Roberts. And today, we're going to tackle the question, why does the United States have such a high prison population? Now, we think the question behind the question should be, what does the Bible teach about prisons? So, Charles, I'm going to turn this over to you. Get us started. Yeah, the answer to that question behind the question may be surprising to some of our listeners, because the Bible really doesn't teach anything about prisons other than they should not exist as they currently do. Uh, there's really no specific statement about having a prison as it's currently administered in these United States, because according to God's law, uh, a person who is guilty and convicted of a crime uh, is to be immediately dealt with, or they immediately make restitution for the crime, or they may be incarcerated for a very brief time while they are uh, awaiting the execution of their sentence. So the way the prisons and jails are administered in our society today uh, is completely contrary to the teaching of God's law. Uh, and so that raises a question uh, about the, the surface question, which is, why does the U.S. have such a high population? And before I throw it back to you, Andrea, let me just let our listeners know that the most recent statistics I was able to find indicate that prison rates in the United States are the world's highest with 724 people per 100,000 incarcerated, almost two and a half million people in prison in our country. So uh, what do you think is going on, uh, Andrea? Why Why are so many people being arrested and thrown in jails? Well, we've talked so many times in our podcasts about the influence that media has on people's thinking. After all, you can't go very far or very long without having some input coming from television, radio, newspapers, or whatever. And crime is a big topic. People want to be safe. And I think it's a fair assessment to say, if you don't put your trust in God, and you don't count on God to keep you safe because of your obedience and the blessing that comes from that, you're going to go to other means, and you're going to seek out other ways of being safe. And so if we have criminals, if we have bad guys, let's get them off the street. Let's put them behind bars, and we'll all be safer as a result of it. Of course, that doesn't seem to be true because crime rates go up and even in places where they'll say the crime rate is down sometimes it's because they don't report certain things as crime or people don't report crime because they know not much is going to take place another aspect to this problem and let me just say what you have described is a completely unbiblical approach to the whole issue of people who are guilty of crimes and what is to be done with them the idea that prisons or jails are to keep us safe, there's no biblical warrant for that approach to things. And not only that, as you well said, it doesn't even work. But the other thing is, that, as Dr. Rush Dooney has pointed out on many, many occasions in different places, there is a humanistic worldview that is at the foundation of the current idea of criminality and prison 
and the reform of people who are guilty of crimes. And that idea is that people can be changed or they can be perfected in some measure. And so another aspect to the current prison issue is that prisons then become a place where people are to be reformed, to be changed, to be somehow enculturated so that they can go back in society and be good citizens. Again, Scripture doesn't know anything about that kind of idea, because according to Scripture, people are not perfectible in their own will and their own ability, and there's nothing any human institution can do to change that. And that is why, according to God's law, and for references, I would refer our listeners to especially the book of Leviticus and the book of Deuteronomy, where the discussions are held about what is to do with someone who's guilty of a crime. And as I mentioned at the beginning, a person is to be given the directive to make restitution to the person from whom they stole something. Or if it's a case of a capital crime, they are to be executed. And uh, there's no uh, awareness whatsoever in the Bible of somebody who's awaiting execution, waiting for days and weeks and months and years for the sentence to be passed. This is a, a modern idea and a modern invention. Even the whole idea of the prison cell is very much patterned after a monastic cell where the person spends time by himself, gets to reflect upon what it is he or she has done. Unfortunately, modern prisons, and we can get into how many people are in prison for things the Bible doesn't call unlawful, but it really is higher education for the criminal if, in fact, he wants to learn from other criminals how to perfect his craft. I think in one of Dr. Rushduni's books, he mentions that laws are coming out so frequently and at such an enormous pace at various levels of government that the only people who can keep up with them are prisoners who have lots of time to read the law books and try to find a loophole in the law. (laughs) I well recall um, a somewhat notorious comedian from the early 1960s who found himself arrested on a few occasions, making the statement, in his experience, in the halls of justice, the only justice is in the halls. And sadly, this becomes the case, and even what you just described, where criminals become more expert at humanistic law than the attorneys and the lawyers themselves, or at least equal to them. This, this is another example of how the idea of justice and restitution have been completely turned upside down, by the humanistic mindset that has dominated our culture for many, many decades. Another aspect to this, and I think something else that has contributed tremendously to the growth of the prison population, uh, are people being arrested for crimes that really don't require anything like incarceration. For example, someone who is convicted of drug use and, and that sort of thing. I heard in a lecture that Dr. Rustuni gave On this topic, he was quoting a a story about a young man who had been arrested for petty larceny. I don't know what he had stolen. It wasn't said in the story. But he was sentenced to three months in jail. And wherever the prison was, he was assigned for those three months. One month before he was to be released, he was beaten to death by other inmates because there was a a prison gang who were extorting money and goods from the other prisoners, and he refused, this young man refused to give them anything. And furthermore, the, uh, the, the prison administration, the guards were all aware of this gang who were extorting money from the other prisoners. And this is another example of the results of turning away from God's standards of righteousness and justice creates this horrific school for crime, as I think you mentioned earlier. Not only that, when you try to perfect 
or do a better job than what God's word says, you might, and I don't even know if this is the case, that you have temporary benefit from it, but in the long run it won't because if the foundations are not on the rock, just like our public school system, our prison system, our judicial system, these are all founded currently on something other than the Bible and God's word where it's very rare that you're even able to appeal to such things. So take the aspect of drug use. It's true when people have too many drugs or too much alcohol or too much caffeine or too much sugar, all of these are drugs, and, and they act in a certain way. If we separate the consequences of their actions and we say, well, it's because he drank too much. It doesn't matter if you drank too much or you didn't drink at all. According to God's word, if you damage someone's property, you have to make restitution. If you did it intentionally or depending on the circumstances, there are not only making up for what was lost, but there are ways in which that you then have to compensate them fully. Certain crimes or unlawful acts are to be met with, with death. It doesn't matter that you raped once. Rape is something that God's law doesn't tolerate. And so when we start separating out people's actions from their motivations, now we can't say this is a capital crime, but we have to do something with this person. So now we house the person at taxpayer expense, and then it opens the door for the prisoners being used in such a way as people who then are still alive but have no rights because they have to do what they're told and like I said at the outset, somehow or other, you have people thinking we're safer because these institutions are there. I want to speak to that issue um, about people who are incarcerated and what their experiences are, because there's another side to this that we haven't gotten into yet, but it is a powerful explanation as to why the prison population in these United States is higher than that of communist China, of all things much, much higher. But, you know, we in this uh, society like to pat ourselves on the back and think about how sophisticated we are. You know, we are all supposed to uh, quake in our beds because the Muslims are, are wanting to kill us all because, quote, unquote, they hate our freedoms. And we look upon other peoples, uh, such as those in the Islamic world, for example, as barbaric, you know, cutting off people's heads and that sort of thing. And certainly we don't engage in that type of activity. But I wonder if you have any information on how people are sometimes actually, in a manner of speaking, quote-unquote, tortured to where they find themselves incarcerated. That's a good point, because most people would tell you torture is a thing of the past. We don't do that. Well, we have to take one step back in order to understand modern-day torture. Biblically speaking, for a capital crime a crime that would be requiring of the death penalty, you need the testimony of two witnesses at least, two to three, the Bible says, and these witnesses need to corroborate each other's testimony. What's missing from that biblical equation that we have today is the idea of if you can get a person to confess, then that counts against him. The Bible says it doesn't count at all. The Bible says you can't rely on a person's testimony. Is it because you can't rely on people to tell the truth? 
No, it's a safeguard against the abuse of power by those in charge of the civil area. So if all you need is a confession, well, then you can torture somebody to get the confession. After all, he said it. He said he did it. Well, how many people today who get offended by words, how easy would it be for them to buckle under actual physical torture? So we think we don't do physical torture anymore. But I know of cases of people that I know that there's a charge given against them. So there's an alleged act of misdoing. And then 40 charges, 40 counts are put up there. 40 counts. Well, the district attorney's office knows that facing all this time, the potential sentence for these 40 things will mean you'll never get out of prison. So what they do is they start plea bargaining. And the plea bargain is, okay, we'll get rid of this one. We'll get rid of this one. If you say you're guilty of this, then we'll reduce your time. Well, we wouldn't call that physical torture, but it's psychological torture, especially if somebody is separated from their family or some separated from their ability to make money and support their family. Now, maybe the, the whole perspective is, well, I better do what's expedient because it's not just about me, it's about my family. And so if you are not in a position to have the truth prevail, and now you have officials of the civil government trying to get people to, you know, negotiate a plea. Sometimes people can be coerced into giving confessions that are inaccurate. And that becomes a means thereby where the population of a prison can be significantly increased. And since we have mentioned that, at least on the surface, the motivation supposedly is to keep our streets safe, also to put hardened criminals in a place where they can be taught better. But there's another aspect to this, and it may explain why our judicial system is interested in engaging in these types of, I guess what we'll call soft torture, uh, to get convictions and admissions of guilt and and this sort of thing. And this is um, something that has arisen in recent decades that some people have called the prison industrial complex. Most people, I think, are familiar with the term the state penitentiary. The state uh, has run, uh, depending on whether it's California or Arizona or Michigan or wherever, has run prisons. There are federal prisons. Of course, as we mentioned at the very beginning, the Bible knows nothing of any sort of thing. It's never the business of the state to be engaged in that type of activity of incarcerating people for long periods of time. And by the way, the statistics that I quoted earlier of there being almost 2.2 million people incarcerated in these United States of that number, we're almost 22% are those people who are in prison awaiting, in other words, they haven't been sentenced, they're awaiting a final sentence. We'll talk about that in, in just a moment. But the prison industrial complex, that is a term that was coined by those who were becoming aware that the state has been delegating or siphoning off the administration of prisons and indeed the building and running of prisons to private corporations for profit. And, and what are the motivations for that? Well, some people may not realize that the, the private companies that own many of the prisons and operate them, they find that they can contract cheap prison labor. They can use them to make things and, and do things at almost, you know, like communist China level wages. Uh, in addition to that, 
the building of prisons uh, is, is a big moneymaker for many construction companies, for those who manufacture and perpetrate uh, surveillance technology, uh, companies that operate prison food services, medical facilities, uh, guard, prison guard unions, private probation companies, lawyers, lobby groups, all of these types of uh, businesses and industries are represented or have an interest in private prisons. The fact is the state sometimes gives kickbacks to these prisons. I mean, in a quote-unquote legitimate way, if they house a a certain number of criminals. So if you have a a prison, it is a priority for you to have it occupied with as many people as you possibly can. A lot of people don't know that a lot of the call centers that come from credit cards or whatever are oftentimes manned by prison inmates. I didn't know that. Yeah, no, it's true. Also, they can do jobs at a a remarkably low rate, a dollar a day, 50 cents a day, with the promise that this will reduce their sentence. I have an acquaintance who ended up in prison. He had been a tax evader for a while, but after going to church and realizing that he needed to make this right, started the process of making it right. Well, he got conflicting information from various bureaucratic sources, and it turned out he was a week late from making his payment that he was supposed to do. And he tried to say, okay, well, I can do it now. Didn't matter. He was going to prison. And he spent six months in prison. And he talks about how he was in with a population of people, grand theft, whatever, and they wanted to know what he did. And when he said, oh, he was late on paying his back taxes, they just shook their head, kind of like, that's why you're here? And he recounted stories whereby the guards knew that the prisoners had drugs. They knew that there were people selling drugs within the prison, but they would hold off until it was a time to make a purge and they could exercise their dominance so that they knew that Activity that would end you in prison was going on in the prison. And his conclusion was he always knew he was somebody's customer. He just didn't know who because somebody was profiting from him being there. So he eventually served his time and left. But then there's the additional, have you really paid your debt to society? Because sometimes if you have a prison record, it greatly impairs your ability to get a job. So is it any surprise that prisons oftentimes are revolving doors because it becomes very difficult for someone with a post-prison experience to feel that he is fully considered reformed, which is what the whole process is supposed to produce? Well, I think there may be some who still think that way, but as I indicated at the beginning, the the whole project of incarceration nowadays, uh, especially for people of uh, who are convicted of things like you, the, the person you were aware of and the person cited by Dr. Rastuni, people who are convicted of, of drug crimes and these sorts of things, they wind up in this meat grinder, this buzzsaw of a system that has an entirely different project than reform. It, it is something that is meant to perpetuate an, an industry. And one of the statistics that I came across said that the prison industry, the employment of people in that industry, is the third largest employer in the world. That's a very sobering statistic. And, you know, look, if, um, if you own a business 
and your profit and your money making is based on people buying your product, well, you have a vested interest in making sure the product is sold and that people buy it. And by the same token, if your profit, a for-profit business is having people incarcerated and using them for cheap labor for various things, then you need to have as many people as you can, especially if you get a certain amount of uh, financial remuneration or however many people you have. You know, I'm not saying that the, the owner of a private prison walks up to the governor's office of some state and says, okay, I just took another one. Okay, here's your check for $100. And what I'm saying is, is that these prisons sometimes are given uh, financial benefits to help them, quote unquote, administer the, uh, the prisons, money that comes from taxpayers, of course, where the state, the states have no other source of income than what it takes from its citizens by way of taxes. And it, it is a horrific thing for people to fall into the hands of this system who, uh, again, the, the, the whole project is based on an entirely different perspective on humanity, on the world, than what we have given to us in Holy Scripture. And somebody once said, I think it was G.K. Chester, I'm not sure, but something like that. Not, not that Christianity has been tried and failed, but it's been tried and found too difficult. Right. And think about it. If God's law was applied and capital crimes bought the, brought about the death penalty as prescribed by God's law, the first thing that would be evident is you could not have repeat offenders because they wouldn't be around. Secondly, because the executions were supposed to be public, oftentimes you will hear the line in Scripture that says to purge the evil from among you. So that meant that people, children included, had to watch the consequences of adultery, the consequences of rape, the consequences of murder. And it left an impression that said, I don't want to go down that route. Does that mean that they might not have had that in their heart? No. But the same way that people who have been slapped with a ticket for speeding or slapped with a ticket for driving in the wrong lane, the penalty is sufficiently severe to get your attention in most cases. Watching someone be put to death because of a capital crime instructs people. So you don't have a criminal class and you have people who have been warned because they witness this is what God's law requires. It's interesting that th- th- this whole idea, the idea that prison is a place where reform is to take place, that you cited at the very beginning, is not borne out by the results, not borne out at all by what we're seeing. If that was the case, especially with such a high incarceration rate, our society would be some sort of paradise. But of course, it's anything but that. If people would simply follow God's law, and let's also say that they're not going to be inclined to do that unless they have been reborn by God's Spirit and have a new heart, a new mind. Uh, they've been transformed by the power of God's salvation. We would indeed find ourselves moving more and more toward a, a truly just and equitable society. And this would tend toward the benefit of everyone. A- again, we find that the state, because of our failure as followers of Christ to hold every aspect of our society accountable to God's law, the state allocates to itself greater and greater authority, and then it decides how people are to be dealt with in terms of punishment, in terms of criminality, and not surprisingly, we then we find the state moves on to tell us when life begins, what constitutes being a human being, and now the states are telling us what constitutes marriage, all of these things that have been previously the domain of the biblical worldview and understanding, however faulty it may have been held, 
Uh, and I think the, the problem is that many Christians don't seem to understand that you might have what is considered the proper biblical view on, say, the issue of homosexuality. But what is your view on, on the issue of prisons, on prisoners and incarceration? Did you even know that there was a, a truly biblical position, as we have been just attempting to articulate it here? And I think that what we're seeing in this area, along with so many others, is the failure uh, on the part of Christian churches and Christian leaders to give proper regard to God's law word. God has a standard of justice, and this is it. And if you do not adhere to it, if you ignore it, if you abhor it, then you will reap the consequences. And this is largely what we are seeing in our society today. And yet you have many quote-unquote good Christians who show up at church on Sunday, carry that big Bible. Unfortunately, the first two-thirds of it they've been told don't count, and that's where you're going to find the laws that you and I are referencing today. And they have turned Christianity into an emotional feel-good thing. So just think of the ridiculous nature of the word penitentiary. It's going to make someone penitent. By actually taking that person, removing him from society, it's going to bring about what? Repentance? He's making penance? So this takes away the reality that the only way you deal with sin is by the blood of Jesus Christ, not by all these other things. And so, interestingly enough, we have to say, okay, why does God allow this? If it's wrong, why does he allow it? Why does he allow things like you mentioned? Well, I happen to know fine Christian men who are active in prison ministries. There's one fellow who is taking a group of prisoners and has through Calvin's Institutes. There's another person I know who is actually taking his students, you might say, through Dr. Rush Dooney's American History Series and World History Series. So in other words, these people are incarcerated and there are Christians who are doing their best to help them understand why they're there, why they're there legitimately for the sins and the crimes they committed. And let's face it, there are people who are guilty of crimes in prisons, obviously. And for those whose bad decisions along the way put them on the wrong side of the state. So it's not like God's footprint is not going to be present even in prisons, would that there were more people who visited people in prisons and endeavored to actually teach them the truth of God's law. Because you see, the prison administration doesn't mind it when these chaplains come in, because they feel it makes the prisoners more likely to follow the rules. So isn't it funny? You can read the Bible in prison, but you can't in a public school. You can't bring it up in a court of law as to why you did this or didn't do this. A remarkable turnaround. Yeah, that is a prime example of how the world has been turned on its head from the biblical perspective, and that which is wrong is considered right. Now, I'm glad you mentioned this thing uh, in, in terms of prison ministry and chaplaincy. Whatever the powers that be who administer these institutions may make of it. Again, as you said, some really powerful work is being done. And I, uh, we, at my church, we recently heard the head of a prison ministry called Metanoia Ministries. This man was incarcerated at Soledad Prison in California, a very notorious place. And I won't go into all the details, but he became a Christian while in prison. But even more specifically, he became a Reformed Christian. And as soon as he was uh, given uh, parole, he found his way to a conservative Presbyterian church, uh, became involved, and has been involved in that denomination ever since. 
and now uh, has partnered with R.C. Sproul's uh, Ligonier Ministries to be involved in prison chaplaincy, where they go over the basic teachings of the Reformed faith with prisoners. Those are laudable things. But I want to go back to something I mentioned earlier, and I just want to share with our listeners some statistics about the issue of what is really being done with people and why so many people who otherwise, uh, uh, let's just, I don't mean this in a bad way, but let's just set aside what Scripture says about this for a moment and just deal with the reality of what's going on. I mean, even if you really think that uh, a prison is a penitentiary, as you mentioned, and should be a place where prisoners are taught to be uh, changing their, their lives, you have to deal with the reality of what's really going on. And I just want to share this information with our listeners, and I'll just say, if any of our listeners want the sources for this information, please email us afterwards and be glad to provide it. Uh, but here's the thing. Corporations, especially those in the technology and food industries, see, they contract prison labor as it is legal, and it's often completely encouraged by government legislatures. I mean, there's a thing called the Work Opportunity Tax Credit that serves as a federal tax credit that grants employers, now get this, $2,400 for every work-release employed inmate. And some people call it prison insourcing, and it has grown increasingly in popularity as the sort of cheaper alternative to outsourcing, and it covers a wide variety of companies. I'll just mention a few of them. McDonald's, Target, Stores, uh, Texas Instruments, Boeing, Nordstrom, Intel, Walmart, Victoria's Secret of all things. AT&T, Microsoft, the whole raft of these kind of companies, they participate in prison insourcing and have done so for the past 20 or 30 years. And just to wrap up that part of what I'm sharing, uh, statistics show that when the unemployment rate is low, and I'm quoting here, the state relaxes imprisonment to allow sufficient labor to compete for wages in the free market. However, when the rate of unemployment is high, the state seems to grant greater number of prisoners to, quote, absorb surplus labor. See, friends, this, this is a very, very different thing than what you may think is going on with the incarceration of people who find themselves in jail. And is it a surprise that a lot of the programming has to do with crime and, and how the police, if it's, if it's a program that's favorable to the police, then we're going to see that they do whatever they might deceive the person being interrogated into thinking that they already know he did it. In other words, the rules of God's Ten Commandments don't apply to the police force or don't apply to the judicial system. Because you see, what we're going to do is we're going to get as many convictions as we are supposed to get. So if you make people, if, if you give someone the job of finding who committed the crime and you don't make it also that they have to do it honestly and correctly, or if they are found to have perjured themselves, which is another biblical law, that whatever consequence would go on the person that they lied about, that that consequence goes to them. See, God's law is all about keeping sinful man in check so that he never has the ability, if the law is followed, to dominate his fellow man. That's the purpose of the checks and balances that we thought were in place with our constitutional government. But when you lose the religious underpinning of we fear God and desire to keep his commandments, when that's lost from the people in general, their institutions will reflect that. It's interesting, too, that right along with that, one of the liberties that we have lost in our society is this business of people being thrown in jail and incarcerated 
without any particular charge. People can be arrested nowadays and, and thrown in jail on just the, the mere suspicion of something. Our founding fathers and those who preceded us in these United States in its earliest history, especially during the era of the war for independence from Great Britain, they were facing this very thing where the British allowed themselves the, the right or allotted to themselves the right to just simply arrest someone and throw them in prison until they rotted to death. The writ of habeas corpus was a law that was specifically designed to prohibit that kind of activity in a just and moral society in which the, these United States were intended to be. Unfortunately, that has gone by the wayside now. And so uh, if you visit enough websites that advocate what some would consider terrorism or something like even if you're re researching a term paper or something on it, your name can be red flagged and who knows, your door might be knocked down in the middle of the night and you dragged off and thrown in jail and nobody might hear from you for six months, if uh, ever. So uh, these are the real things that are going on in our society today. And people, unfortunately, are not aware of it. But the point is, we have fallen far, far from the ideal that was given to us by the founding fathers who were coming at this from a biblical standpoint. They recognized, if not in an articulate and explicit way, at least implicitly, that because of a standard of justice that is based on the Ten Commandments and God's law, you simply don't have the right or the purpose to pick someone up and throw them in jail because you don't like them, you don't agree with them, they voice some opinion that is unpopular, they must be charged with a crime, and they must be dealt with in a way that God says is proper. This man stole my cow. Okay, well, then if you have the witnesses, that man will make restitution. Well, the cow died after he, he stole it. Then the God's law provides for that sort of thing. If someone is convicted of a capital crime, and we talked about this in a previous discussion. Let's just take the issue of sodomy and homosexuality. It is a capital crime according to God's law, but as you pointed out, it requires at least two witnesses. And so it's not as though in a just and godly society you'd find people hanging from lamp lampposts, which, by the way, is the way some people who don't like God's law like to characterize those of us who do, that we would be doing that sort of thing at every chance we got. No, because we strive to be faithful to God's word, and it is, con it is just as contrary to God's word to execute justice on someone who has not been properly proven guilty as it is to violate God's law in the way that uh, they had done in the first place. Scripture says, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? What can we do? Well, our foundations have been destroyed. Well, the answer isn't all that difficult. It's to restore the foundation. If you discover that a building has a faulty foundation, you don't go and decorate the walls on the third floor and try to make it prettier. You go in and you deal with the foundation. And that's what we need to do. And that's why the emphasis at Calcedon, and if somebody's been listening to our podcast, it always goes back to we must use God's law for the purpose it was given to be a foundation for God's views on things and how God wants things structured. Because if we're not going to do God's law, we're going to do someone else's. And what we spent the last half hour talking about is what it looks like when a law system is in place that's not founded on God's law. And I would just challenge our listeners to consider what they are making or thinking about the sorts of things that we have been saying. If it strikes you as bizarre, uh, unacceptable, strange, then this raises a real question about what are your understandings and foundations about criminality, about what are the standards of justice. 
Are they, in fact, based on what God's law teaches? And if they are not, or if your idea is, well, hey, it shouldn't be. You know, the, the God's word has nothing to say about these kind of things. God's word is primarily about telling us about God's plan to bring a Savior into the world and save his people from their sins, and we should be studying how to be pious and holy people and constantly confessing our sins to God and this sort of thing, then it's understandable that you might think that way, but there is nothing in the Word of God that tells us that his Word is limited to that sort of perspective. And this, as uh, our friend Martin Selbretti has pointed out on many occasions, is one of the byproducts of a pietistic approach or another way of putting that is the emphasis on the spiritual uh, over against the material, that we must be constantly dealing with our interior lives. And so we actually do have, even among people who claim to be Reformed, uh, a current theological trend that says, uh, no, the Bible really has nothing to say about these kind of things. We should be concentrating on, quote-unquote, getting people saved or you know, perfecting our, our personal holiness. And when you convince people of that, it's a great way to make sure that statism increases. Because if you don't let people understand that part of God's dominion mandate, which could also be the Great Commission, wasn't just to save people from their individual sins. It was to spread the concept that in every area of life and thought, we are to be making disciples of Jesus Christ. That's in your home. That's in the school. That's in the civil order. That's in the church order. That if you think there's an area where God's law doesn't apply and you don't like God's law as being operative, maybe you don't like the God who gave it. In which case, you need to reevaluate. Do you serve the God of the Bible or do you serve the God of your imagination? Yeah, that uh, statement you just made, Jesus in Matthew 28 Go and make the nations my disciples, teaching them to do what? Feel good about themselves on the inside? No, he says, teaching them to obey, to do all the things that I've taught you. Well, what is it that Jesus taught them? Well, he taught them God's word. And from the theological standpoint, if you believe that Jesus is in fact God, then all of scripture, every bit of it, from Genesis to Revelation, is his written, inspired word. And he furthermore said, If you love me, you will do what? Obey my commandments. What commandments could he possibly be talking about? Is somehow Jesus divorced from the Ten Commandments, from the law of God, from everything written in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy? No, he's not. Now, there are people who have pretended to be Christians who have tried to argue that way, and we still have them surfacing in different places today. They may not claim it this way. They may not be explicit about it, but when you examine what they teach, They reject what they would consider the God of the Old Testament in favor of Jesus of the New Testament. That is a heresy. And again, every aspect of the teachings of God are equally inspired and inerrant. And insofar as some part of it makes you uncomfortable, then that's a call for you to reexamine what is the basis and foundation of your faith. And I think there's a case for the fact that there are people who are truly wicked and will truly have as their motivation to take Scripture and turn it. We'd call those folks the wolves in sheep's clothing. But I think there's also a significant population of people who have been taught incorrectly, and because the way they've been taught, quite frankly, is easier to live than following God's word 
in all the manifestations of bringing proper sanctions against wrongdoers, upholding the responsibility towards widows and orphans and strangers. And we could go into a whole discussion about that. What they need to do is realize that maybe they don't know what they think they know. And that's why going back to the First Testament, the Older Testament, and reading what it says and say, if we're still carrying this book around, why? Could it be that when Jesus said not one jot or tittle is removed, that he's talking about this stuff here and I ought to understand it? Because to me, the scariest words in Scripture, Charles, come from the parable of the sheep and the goats where people are told, go that way. I never knew you. They're going, no, 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 we did. We did this, we did that, we did the other thing. But Jesus' response to them is, I didn't know you. In other words, you didn't know me, therefore I didn't know you. Sadly, we have many people in the, they would call themselves conservative evangelical Christians. They know far more about what their favorite TV talk show host, the evening news broadcast host, their favorite conservative radio personality. They will quote them day and night. And in effect, this has become their gospel whatever these people say. They're, they're against the same things I'm against, so I like them. No one ever seems to stop to ask, is what your favorite TV uh, commentator, I don't care how conservative the news network claims to be, is what he's saying in line with what God's law says. And if it's not, then you need to reject it. This then becomes the, the reality that we're dealing with and why we might expect that those who would be considered liberals or whatever that term may mean would reject the supremacy of, of God in all areas of life. But people who claim to be traditional Christians of some sort, they're the ones who are the most guilty. And the parable that you pointed out, understand, and I, I like to say this to, to my folks in, in my church, and I'll say it here, Jesus is talking to the people who claim to believe in him. He's talking to the people that consider themselves good, Jesus-loving people. But this is what they're going to hear. One of the emphasis that I've spent the last 10 years of my life doing as I knew that my time as being a homeschooling parent was coming to an end was really working with women who are teaching their children and, and are trying to inculcate in their families an understanding of this is that when you know and apply God's law, and my courses are taking them through the Institutes of Biblical Law by Rush Dooney, it's amazing how when you hear something or you, you, you find a perspective that's being promulgated, you go, wait a minute, that's not according to God's law. And they feel empowered, not because, you know, they've pumped iron and now they can punch people out. They know the truth and it's the truth that sets them free. So whether it's a bad marriage or a bad working situation or a church setting where things aren't going the way they're supposed to go, they're having as their reference point God's law and their responsibility to be faithful to him. We have ranged far and wide across this topic, a very relevant one in our time today. And this is yet another example of how the word of God speaks with authority concerning everything about which it speaks. And it speaks about everything, including the issue of prison, prisoners, incarceration, standards of justice, uh, and these kind of issues. I just want to see, Andrea, if there are any recommendations that you might give our listeners about any further resources that they can pursue to uh, learn more about this thing. Well, I would really suggest, instead of just one book, I would suggest people take the time, go to the Calcedon website, calcedon.edu, 
And in the search bar, start putting in words like prisons and confessions and incarceration and jails and start reading the stuff that's there. There's print work, there's video, there's audio tracks. There's a lot to do that if you spend some time, you would find areas to say, wow, I've never considered that before. And it's a good time investment to do something like that. So that's my recommendation. And if folks will do that, they will find at least one of those sources recommended is a lecture by Dr. Rushduni from the book, Our Threatened Freedoms. You can, hear, you can actually read that online. You could get the book, which I would encourage you to do, but there's also an audio lecture of the same, uh, on the same chapter concerning uh, prisons. And in, in this lecture and in the book, he tells the story that I mentioned earlier. So I strongly recommend folks to take advantage of of what you just said and that resource in particular. I will also recommend if people want to stay abreast of these kind of issues as it relates to the loss of freedoms in our society, the continuing fallout of turning away from God's standards in this, this particular area, that the Rutherford Institute, run by John Whitehead, is a great resource for that. I think at one time Dr. Rastuni was on the board of that organization, and if you will check out their website as the Rutherford Institute, you will find uh, a lot of resources and information that will keep you up to date on what's going on in this issue of prison and loss of our freedoms in our society. It's incumbent upon all believers who want to really fulfill the Great Commission to be knowledgeable, not only about God's law, but also to see how it's either being applied or not being applied in particular situations. And it's not always the case that the If the liberal Democrats think something is right, well, then we must think it's wrong if we're conservative Republicans or vice versa. The point is God's law has to be the standard, and that's what we need to be expert on because then we'll be able to see the counterfeits more readily. You don't get good at spotting counterfeits by studying counterfeits. You get good at spotting counterfeits by studying and knowing the genuine. On that excellent point, we will wind up today's uh, podcast. We thank our listeners for tuning in, and we would ask you to correspond with us. You can reach us at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. You can bring in your own suggestions, and uh, we would be glad to entertain other questions that you might want us to discuss, any comments or uh, issues that you want to share. So thank you, Andrea, for speaking with me today. I look forward to our conversations. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, visit www.kingdomdrivenfamily.com.